Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Today on the show, we have part one of my discussion with Hannah Watkins. Hannah was born into the move of God, and she spent the first 18 years of her life in that religious organization. In the time since she has left, she has learned to value the sense of family and community she was raised in. And she's also started seeing how damaging and dangerous extreme adherence to restrictive religious beliefs can be, especially for young girls. She talks about that in particular in her first interview and also in the second part that you'll hear next week. Here is the first part of my two-part conversation with Hannah Watkins. I want to welcome Hannah Watkins to the show today. Um, She's somebody who was in touch with me after hearing the podcast and she was sharing some of her story and I thought this would be wonderful if she would be on. So Hannah, I'm very happy that you're taking the time today to share your story. You had a lot of great insights because of your experiences, but also what you needed after you left, what was difficult, what skills you needed to build, and kind of what you want people to know so they can learn from your experience, and especially a message to girls and to women. So let's get cooking with you just introducing yourself, and then we'll go from there. Uh, My name is Hannah, and I was born into the Move of God, also known as Move of the Spirit, which um, was sort of, I think of it as a revivalist sort of movement that started in the 70s. By the time I was born into it, we were living in log cabins in northern BC. And I, I've just, in different points of my life, searched for other people who experienced what I did. And I found your podcast and found a lot of community, just listening to the people that you have been interviewing. Mm -hmm. But I found that my experience has been slightly different in the sense that we didn't have blatant child abuse. There weren't, there wasn't any polygamy or anything like what people would think of as the juicy extreme version of cults. And yet there was quite a bit of spiritual abuse. There was a lot of more subtle forms of control. And I think it's important for people, even in um, maybe what they think of as an organized religion, going to church on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. I want I want them to understand that there is still guilt, a guilt message being preached. There's still a form of control, especially as women in the church. There's so much um, put on us as females. And I think that's, that's sort of my, my underlying message is that it doesn't have to be that way. And that's not necessarily the path to God or the path to holiness. Right. Okay, good. So I, I want to be able to touch on a lot of these issues. I'm taking notes as you're talking and the subtle forms of control. It's interesting because you, you started out by saying, you know, we didn't have this that's big and sensationalistic and we didn't have that. That's obvious. Most groups are like yours and most relationships that people come to me to get help with afterwards, you know, um, 
are like yours, where it was subtle. So there aren't these obvious signs where you can't necessarily go to the police and say these bad things are happening to me. But still, the effect is there, and you're racked with guilt or a sense of responsibility or that you're a bad person. And you can, it, it can be so subtle that you're not sometimes even sure how you got there to believe something that is where you're so sure of it about yourself. Like, what, where did that come from? And so it's really good to be able to pick it apart and understand that the subtle messages, if they're repeated, or if they're, I think, laced with fear, they have the same impact as the very kind of more obviously abusive tactics that happen in cults. How do you feel about that? Is that saying it in the way that you think about it? Yeah, I think of it. So in in typical American or North American society, we are from the time we're born, we're sold an American dream, right? The white picket fence the husband and the wife and the kids and the good job and the cars in religion we're also sold that american dream in the sense that when i'm a little when i was a little girl in church everyone was aspiring to this one ideal this one holy ideal and that involved a lot of effort on my part to be a holy woman mm. so growing up we were trained okay you have to dress a certain way you have to you have to act a certain way if you have any wishes or desires outside of this holy ideal this religious american dream then it's bad it's sin and any sort of desire to express your individuality to do any sort of self exploration is going outside of that and why would you ever want to go outside of that because this is the ideal this is what we're all trying to attain Okay, so I'm wondering, just when you talk about that with women, how it was with men. So I, I'm picturing sort of a chart, sort of men versus women or women versus men. So in terms of how you dress or having goals that you want to reach or things that you want to feel satisfied about outside of the group, how was it different for the men? What were the rules placed on them, if any? There weren't as many. They had so much more freedom to, because they were going to be the providers. Even though we had equal ideas about female and male leadership in church, God was male. So there was just automatically this idea that the male was probably just a little bit closer to holiness already <laughs> than the women. So in terms of dress, though, did they have to dress a particular way or not? No. So in our... I was refer to it as the farm, the farm that, that I grew up on that was communal living and all that. Um, so on the farm, men were not allowed to wear shorts in the summer. And we didn't, no, men didn't have mustaches or beards. Those were basically the rules for men. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The rules for women were, okay, skirts or dresses had to be below the knee. If you had a slit in the back of your skirt, it couldn't be more than four inches and it could not go above the knee. Uh, no spaghetti strap tops, nothing tight or revealing. If you wore a t-shirt, it had to be tucked in. Um, no bright fingernail polish. If you cut your hair, it couldn't be um, really, really short. No extreme makeup. There's so many rules and we couldn't, we weren't allowed to go anywhere by ourselves. 
it was very, very rare that a woman would have a job outside of the farm because most of the women on the farm were married and their jobs were to um, help cook meals for the whole farm and to raise the kids and to work in the garden. Wow, okay. So the rules around the women were so much more, more restrictive. Okay, and it, there's a phrase that you used in one of the emails where you said to, to rebel silently, that you had learned to rebel silently. And I'm noticing your fingernail polish. <laughs> right right on and my tattoos <laughs> exactly that's rebelling silently uh but in this beautiful way freedom of expression and it doesn't make you a bad person to do those things which is one of the most beautiful things i have learned in my life mm-hmm. is that you can be yourself mm-hmm. and it can be a, an amazing beautiful thing even if it's completely different than what your parents told you you needed to look like or act like right right yeah isn't that incredible? It makes you think back on all these rules and why were they important at the time? What were they about? Um, what do you think they were about? Well, so going back to the beginning, Sam Fife, who started the move, I guess he would be the guru in, in other terminology. He had this ideal of these farms that were going to be this utopic um, separation from the world. We were all going to be just pursuing holiness in this really smooth way. We're all going to live together and work together and just worship Jesus together. So the rules were put in place to, I think, streamline everyone into the same model. Mm -hmm. Like, because we had all these people coming into the move from all these different backgrounds with all their own ideas. And in order to make this little society functional, everyone had to buy into the same message. So we all had to act the same way. We all had to live the same way. And you can't just have, you can't have a holy farm with people running off into the woods to smoke pot and have premarital sex. So there was all these rules put into place about what you can and can't do, which was also a form of starting to control and starting to brainwash and get everyone to buy into this ideal. Okay, so tell us a little bit more about Sam Fife, and then I want to hear about your own folks and bringing you in, and also where where this was located. I know you wrote a little bit to me about that, but to just tell our listeners. This is my caveat. This is my story, and this is what I know of my history, and things I say might not necessarily be exactly the way other people will remember, but this is my story. So Sam Fife, my understanding is he was um, a preacher in, I think in Florida, and he started to receive messages from God about creating um, a new wave of the spirit that would bring a group of people together to, to leave regular society behind, to move into the wilds of nowhere, um, to start these these farms where we were going to prepare for the end of the world. We are going to be able to raise our kids without any outside influence and to just pursue holiness uninterrupted by cities and traffic and technology and whatever. So my father was born on a cotton farm in Texas in 1938. He had a very simple upbringing. He worked on his dad's farm and put himself through Baylor University 
Uh, he got a social working degree and he was active in the Baptist church in Texas. My mother was born to um, sort of an unhappy couple who it was her father's second marriage and her parents owned a little bakery in a tiny little town in um, Texas. And she also went to university, was very active in her church and became a teacher. So my parents met in the Baptist church and my father developed an instant crush on my mother and pined after her for seven years, which is a story we were told as teenagers when we developed crushes on boys. Dad would say, I waited for your mother for seven years. So my mom somehow heard about this new preacher called Sam Fife, who was preaching in people's homes, just doing little home groups and spreading this kind of revivalist message of moving away. So my mom started going to listen to Sam and she really, she bought into the, the fervency. She was very emotionally driven when it came to religion. Mm -hmm. And my father decided it was his duty to go rescue my mother from this cult that she was about to join. Wow. So he started going to the meetings to be able to convince her that this was just foolhardy. And he got completely sucked in as well. And my dad had a, a pilot's license for small planes. And Sam needed someone who would fly him from church group to church group throughout the states. And so he latched onto my dad pretty fast. My dad started flying Sam everywhere and helping spread this message. Then at one point, Sam said to my mother, um, you really should think about marrying this man, Ernest, my father. He's, he's a pretty good guy. And within six weeks, they got married. Lived in town for a little bit, and but within a, a year or two, packed up um, a trailer my dad bought a bow and arrows and some survival guides for living in the woods, like how to make pine needle tea. And they moved sight unseen to a property in Northern BC where there was nothing but a trapper's cabin. And they started clearing land by hand and making log cabins based on what this book said. And people started arriving in droves and that's how it all started. Wow. It's reminding me of these sort of the homesteaders, you know, and the prairie and the people who are hardy people uh, who can handle that kind of life and without anything, without any creature comforts. Uh, that is quite amazing. Okay, so they went there with nothing, with just this logger's cabin. How many people started coming? I mean, how big was this group at that time? I think I want to say... The farm they started out on, it got over 100 people, maybe maybe 200. And this is when the rules started to be put into place. You know, when it was just a, a few couples sitting there making log houses together, there weren't problems. But then there would be a group, like a van would show up one day with a group of young people. So they had to make sure that there was rules in place for behavior, you know, for a code of conduct. And then by the time they had 100 or 200 people living there, there was even more rules put into place, more control. There was, I found a rule book one time digging through my parents' papers in their bedroom. And my mom, I remember her being mortified that I found it. She was embarrassed, which is kind of interesting. But in this rule book, there was rules about couples who wanted to have a baby. Mm -hmm. They would have to go speak to 
the elders, the, which were the spiritual heads, like pastors, we called them elders. They would have to ask the elders if it was okay if they had a baby because there was 20 babies under the age of two that needed minding during the day while everyone was out doing farm work and whatnot. Right, right. So there was, I mean, there was practical applications for some of the rules in place, but it was also another form of control of the people. Once these people were there and everyone was contributing and tithing, mm -hmm. it was sort of a captive audience. Yes, right. And in terms of communication, once you were there, were you supposed to cut off from people outside the group or your family outside the group? It wasn't necessarily, it wasn't put so plainly, but like we didn't get electricity till I was nine. Oh, wow. I think. Okay. Um, when my dad would travel, because my father continued to travel and preach under Sam's guidance. Okay. Um, and Sam died actually the, right before I was born, but my dad continued to be fairly high up in the hierarchy of the move. Um, so when my dad would be traveling, my mom and my sister and I would drive six miles, I think, to this weird little gas station in the middle of nowhere. And there was a phone booth. And we would stand in the dead of winter and take turns in the phone booth on the payphone talking to my dad, wherever he was. So we didn't have like control of information was quite easy because we didn't have electricity. You know, we were hours from the nearest town. So you couldn't even like if you wanted to go drive to town and do anything, you had to ask the elders for permission to get in your car and drive to town. Okay. Well, that does paint a picture of isolation. It really, really does. Okay. Right. And so you don't even have to put that in the rule books. Just practically speaking, it became kind of nearly impossible to have access to the world around you and information and others outside the group. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think, um, especially on the farm, I, I was raised on, um, there was a group of people who came sort of as young adults, um, and over the years, as I sort of collected their stories, I think that there was a lot of, they felt already disenfranchised with society. Mm -hmm. They were moving up in the sort of late 70s, mm -hmm. early 80s. Mm -hmm. um, some of them came from broken homes. Some of them just didn't fit in mm -hmm. to the world around them. Um, so there was a lot of that. They distant, They were distant already when they came up. And then to to arrive into this isolated place and to be, I was reading the other day about how the Moonies used to love bomb mm -hmm. people. There was a lot of love bombing going on. So all of a sudden they had just a built-in family right. as soon as they arrived. Okay. So that went a long way to making it easier for people to give up what they were leaving behind. Uh-huh. Right. Because it felt so good. It felt so good. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so I'm curious. Uh, a lot of people will ask me sort of for a vision, sort of a day in the life. Okay. And so I'm wondering, what was it like? I mean, if you didn't have electricity or whatever, or heat or whatever you needed, I don't know what it is that you did and didn't have, but I would love to hear about what a day was like for the group, for you specifically. So our days were pretty regimented. Breakfast, we, we ate our meals communally in a building we called the Tabernacle. And in the tabernacle, it was shaped like a like the Red Cross. So in the middle would be the dining room where we all ate. One wing had a kitchen and pantry. 
One wing had a family room. Uh, one wing had um, the church pews. And then one wing was a mudroom. And so at 7.15 was breakfast every morning. You were expected to arrive 15 minutes before the meal to be able to greet, to say hello, and be able to be seated in an orderly fashion when breakfast began at 7.15. And even where we sat at the tables was set out by one of the women in charge of the kitchen. Mm -hmm. She would make up a seating plan mm -hmm. and it would change every two weeks, but it would be a detailed list of which families sat at which table. And then some of the single people would be thrown in to even out the numbers. Um, so we would have our breakfast at 7.30 in the morning. Devotions would begin. So this was where anyone in the farm over the age of 16 would be called upon to give a little mini sermon or talk about what the Lord had been telling them, mm -hmm. which was incredibly nerve wracking for me as a teenager, having to get up and do this. It was a rite of passage when we all turned 16. It was awful. And then we would have a time of prayer and then we would be dismissed and then we would do dishes and dishes were regimented too. children under the age of 12 could dry, but couldn't touch the corningware. When you turn 12, you were old enough to touch the corningware and rinse. And then when you were 14 or something like that, you were allowed to wash as well. And it was every step was regimented. Mm -hmm. It made us all work like clockwork. We could wash dishes by hand for feeding 50 people from scratch in a matter of minutes. Right. Worked very well. And then school would start at 8.30. We had our, a little schoolhouse. Um, we had a little schoolhouse on the farm. And there was, when I went to school there, there was about 12, 12 of us kids. It was one other girl in my grade. It was very small. Um, so a lot of the, the mothers were teachers. We had one woman who had been um, a school teacher in Ohio, I think, or in Texas, and she was our principal. Mm -hmm. um, so we had sort of a curriculum that she had developed. We had some textbooks from outside, um, but we would gloss over the parts about the Big Bang mm -hmm. theory because that wasn't biblical. Mm -hmm. um, so we would have school and then we'd go back to the tabernacle for lunch. We would get let out at noon at 12.15. We sat down for lunch. We would be done eating by about 12.30 because we had to go wash the dishes and get back to school at one. And then dinner would be the same thing. Dinner was at 5.30, I think. We all had to be at the tabernacle at 5.15. Mm -hmm. And our days would just continue like that through school. And then once you were, once I graduated from high school and I was a woman, mm -hmm. I was put on the work schedule. So I would be responsible for either by myself or with another woman preparing two to three meals for the farm a week. Um, we had a laundry house. So each woman was given either a morning or an afternoon during the week. And that was when she did all the laundry for her family, um, which took a lot less time once we got electricity and we didn't have to use a ringer washer. We would have some sort of church service on Wednesday nights. Um, and then we'd have formal church on Sunday. And then if we had people, if we had pastors or people coming through, um, spiritual leaders, we would throw the schedule aside so that we could have more church so that they would be able to preach. And then there was, um, we called them conventions where all the farms in the area would get together 
once a year and we would have like a whole weekend of church and all these different traveling ministers would come and preach and be like a big social gathering too. Okay. So I'm curious if you were late, because it sounds like you had to be places at 15 minutes after, and then things would start at 30, 30 minutes. What happens if you were late? So one of my friends, uh, her family moved to our farm when she was, I want to say 11 or 12. And she had a really hard time getting up in the morning, as so many people do. That's not a sin, but she was frowned on. She was taken aside and told, you know, you need to work on being on time. Like at one point, there was a lot of talk about demons. We had a lot of demon casting outing going on. Um, so she was she was told that she had maybe a demon of laziness and needed to work on her her time her timing and being more on time there was no there was no room in the schedule for people who needed extra allowance it was looked at as okay you have a problem that you need to pray about and you need to work on being better at that not a she suffers from migraines once a month and needs a break she can't come to every meal if she's got a pounding headache it was more seen as you're not pulling your weight or you're not being holy you know you're you're being lazy and get with a program and what about uh, yes migraines are horrific uh what about if you had a cold or the flu then what if you were legitimately sick uh -huh. there would be some allowance for that like you could you could get someone else to cover like if you were supposed to be making lunch that day and you were just couldn't stop throwing up, there would be some people stepping in okay. for that. Okay. Um, it was like the legitimate problems like that. We were really good when somebody died, when someone had a baby, when someone fell and broke their leg or cut their leg with a chainsaw. We were really great at that. But then when people just were depressed or tired or whatever, mm -hmm. having headaches, that's when it was a little bit more well you just need to get over it jesus wants you to persevere basically <laughs> right you know i think people don't realize in those moments you see how much a group has sort of a sophistication or not if if it has to be so flagrant and obvious for them to take note or to take it seriously that is how it often is. That is how it often is, even in just families growing up. You know, if you're having anxiety or depression, that's something that might be so subtle. You still need to go to school. You know, people might not understand that you need the same thing. You need to rest. You need to feel safe. You need to be taken care of as though you had the flu. But I wonder also for, for um, you know, we're we'll certainly get back to a lot of the things that you said, but I want to talk more at some point about the demon casting outing and the end of the world, because there's, those are more intense pieces of the story. I'm for. Okay. And also speaking in tongues, I want to get back to that part too. Okay. All right. And so then you went to sleep and then it sort of started all over again. Yeah. Day by day. Okay. As you were growing up and then going into your teen years, I mean, that's certainly going to shift how you are emotionally. And so what did it become like for you as you were moving into being a teenager and becoming soon to become a woman? That was when the, the trouble started. <laughs> I always think of like, there was there was hints of it 
as I got older, um, towards, I, I'm trying to think what age I was, the dreaded egg incident, which was a turning point in my life. I think I was, I must have been eight or nine, maybe, no, maybe older, 10 or 11. I don't remember at what age, but we were, we were young. And this is kind of indicative of the darker side of our childhood. So we had laying hens, we had 120 or something, lots of hens that were laying all these eggs. And it was part of, you know, our staple diet. So we would get like 16 dozen eggs a day that were covered in poop, not like you see in the grocery store, we'd have to clean them. And so that was the kid's job. After dinner, certain nights, we all wash eggs. And we actually enjoyed it. It was super fun. So when they, we first, when we had electricity, we got this fancy egg washing machine and it made the job a lot easier. So at first we were all washing eggs together. And then one of the oversights of the kitchen decided to break us up into teams for, I don't know why, like, so that maybe the kids didn't have to wash eggs all the time together. Well, we really didn't like that. We wanted to wash eggs as a group. We were so joined. We were like brother and sister. There was eight or nine of us kids and we did everything together. We ate together. We went to school together. We played together. We wore our group. So this idea of breaking us into teams was just completely nonsensical to us. Mm -hmm. And I have distinct memories of feeling that way, but wondering if I was bad for questioning the authority. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, I waited as I saw adults around me do, for confirmation from God. I needed a word from God about what I was feeling. Mm -hmm. And there was a moment leading up to the egg incident where someone in the pulpit one Sunday said something about how if you feel like you have a word from God, you should be able to speak up. Your your voice should be heard because we all are in in touch with God. It's not just coming from the pulpit. It's not just the elders receiving word. It's everyone on the farm. We can all receive a word from Jesus in our hearts. And they also talked a little bit about you should be able, if you feel something is not right within your soul, you should be able to speak up. This is a very, like they said, this is an inclusive, everyone's voice needs to be heard. One of those lovely messages. And I took that to heart. And so did my friends. So we got together. We wrote this little letter, very polite. Dear elders, may we please not be broken into teams for washing eggs? Can we please be a group and wash eggs? And we all signed it, every single one of us. And we sent it to the oversight. And we waited. And one morning during announcements after breakfast, this oversight, who was also one of the head elders, She said, she pulled out this letter and said, I need to speak with, and she listed all of our names. After dishes in the church area, be there. And she was not very happy about it. So we all go filing in there and we're sitting down in a little row. I remember my feet didn't touch the floor. I was still swinging my legs, sitting on the pews. And she tore us into strips. She said we were being, uh, we were being rebellious for not just obeying the authority that God had invested in her, that we as children were meant to listen to what our elders told us and just obey without question. And then she went into this long spiel about how children are are born fallen. We are sinful creatures when we come into the world. 
And it is a duty of the adults around us to instill the fear of God into us and to somehow force this evilness that we inherently are born with out of us. And that is their job. And it takes them away from their own holy calling. But this is what the adults are tasked with in relation to raising godly children. Just a few months ago, I found a transcript of a sermon that Sam Fife gave about children being born and the duty of the adults to instill the fear of God rather than leading with love, basically. And she was almost saying word for word what he had instructed. So we were left just completely chastised for speaking up. We were all crying. We were blubbering, the whole group of us. And then off we went to school. So that was, there was hints in my life that leading up to my teenage years, things were not all loving and accepting the way that some people might be speaking from the pulpit. In so many groups, kids are just sort of seen as a burden. And you feel it every once in a while, like that you, just by your mere existence and being fallen, quote unquote, you are drawing attention and energy away from the adults who could be spending it on other things. And you can then just feel guilty for being. Yeah. And that is quite a burden to place on children. Yeah. It, like even when, when we wanted to go play after dinner on in the summer, because it stayed light till really late. So we had a huge yard, um, this big cleared field. We had a volleyball net and we had, um, we had a football and we had a kickball. We had all these different things. We loved to play ball together at night, mm -hmm. but we had to have what we called a covering. Mm -hmm. We couldn't all just go as a group, even though this field was viewable from every house on the entire farm, we had to have a covering and it had to be a parent. Mm -hmm. And it had to be usually a male parent. So anytime we wanted to go play together, we would have to, at dinner, we would start with the parent we thought was going to be the biggest pushover. Mm -hmm. And we'd beg, please, 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 can you cover us so we can play ball? And he'd be tired from working all day. And he'd say, no, I don't want to cover you. We'd go to the next adult. Okay, who else can we ask? Who, who would come play ball with us so we can play? And we would have to beg. I have distinct memories of us just working our way down the list of adults begging for someone to give up their evening so that we kids could go play ball for an hour. That instills that idea in children that your existence is a burden. And, you know, there, there are some parents who make a, a really big mistake where, um, and this sounds like it was systemic, so this was part of the teaching, but I see it in families, too, where, where kids will say, you know, I grew up with uh, a father who had said, if, you know, I hadn't had so many kids, we could have had a bigger house or, you know, I could have could have had more resources or a mother who said, if I hadn't gotten pregnant with you, I would have finished my education. You know, and the, the children think I didn't ask for this. So why are you blaming me for what you haven't had in your life? But it, it, so it happens on a smaller level within families, but then when it happens within a whole group, just that feeling of discomfort and also that it wasn't uh, necessary. If all of you were playing and you were out in the open, 
it did place this burden on you, this sort of guilt, this and having to beg for something and be turned down and having to beg again and be turned down. I mean, it, it's also, it, it's so wrong too, because if Sam Fife had wanted this organization to continue, it needed the next generation. So there should have been a gratefulness, I think, for there to be this symbol of a future for the organization rather than, well, you know, you guys are a drag and you're siphoning off our resources. That is very, very hard. And so just to feel like you're worthy, I'm sure, was a very hard thing to do. Yes. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. This this is completely aside, but this idea of if Sam or any of the adults who had bought into this dream of this utopic ideal, mm-hmm. they all bought into it so fully. And yet, they were unable to pass that dream on to us because they held it so closely. Mm-hmm. And we, we, the second generation, were not seen as the people who would pass this on. Mm-hmm. We were seen as the inconvenience. We were seen as the constant interruption to their ideal. So on my farm, I think the youngest person there is in their late 50s. Mm. All, my whole generation is gone. The farms are dying. There are there are a few couples who have kids now that are third generation, a few, but for the most part, it's dying because the dream was not passed on to us. Right, because it wasn't joyful and welcoming and you didn't get the love bombing. No. Well, and even when young couples on our farm got married and then were hoping to participate now as all the other adults did. They were still treated as children or still treated as not quite full members. You know, they weren't entrusted with some of the responsibilities that the other adults were entrusted with. But there was no future for them either. Right. Okay. Okay. And then also there's the other thing about fault that I want to make sure to get to when you were talking about how if, if a woman or maybe a teenage girl too is treated poorly by a man, it's her fault. So there seems to be that there was a lot of redirection of fault and who was at fault. Uh, and so I'm curious about hearing more about that. I think that, that that idea sort of applies to almost every Christian religion that I have heard about. This idea that if a man lusts after a woman, it's something she's done. It's how she's dressed or how she has acted. I mean, that's, it goes into society too and whole Me Too movement too. You know, I should be able to wear whatever I want, walk down the street and not be attacked by a man. But in, in the, on the farm, women were, especially when we were young and virginal, we were this gift that would be given to our future husbands. And we had to behave appropriately. If we stepped outside of that appropriate female behavior, our value was diminished. I, if I snuck out of the house and made out with my boyfriend, what other man would want me because I had already kissed someone else. But it was okay for the man or the boy. He could yeah. still, right. Okay. There was not that, I mean, he would get in trouble because he was doing something he shouldn't, but it was not the same. Like when I got caught sneaking out um, with my boyfriend, um, my dad kept me in the house for days. I wasn't even allowed to go to school. And my boyfriend at the time, I think he got a stern talking to in front of the, he was dragged into an elders meeting and got a stern talking to, but 
my dad seriously considered having to leave the farm because he felt like he had lost so much face in front of the community. If he couldn't control his own daughter and her embarrassing behavior, mm-hmm. who was he to mm-hmm. be able to counsel and preach and lead this flock of sheep, Christians? So I got in huge trouble. And my boyfriend got off with, you know, a stern talking to. Mm-hmm. Right. How old were you at this time? I was 16. 16. Okay. We were, uh, we would, we weren't doing anything. Like we were just making out. It wasn't like we were out, you know, finding drugs or doing anything crazy. We're just sneaking out in the dead of winter and kissing a little bit. It was fine. <laughs> now I say that to myself now. Uh-huh. My father was, when he hauled me into the living room after they, this all came to light, he said, I am more hurt from your behavior here in this event than I was when my own son died. Wow. That was put on me and indicative of how women were expected to behave and the consequences of them messing up. Like I had, I had broken my father's heart because I was sneaking out. Wow. Okay. And what about your mother? What was her reaction? Um, she felt similarly. If anything, she would be in the background pushing him to be more harsh. They had both joined the move in different ways. Like this goes back to their origin stories. My mother, she's been spiritual her whole life. And she really finds comfort in the community and the religious observances and the the rules. Those make her feel safe and happy. She grew up with an alcoholic father. So any sort of loving guidance makes her feel safe. Mm -hmm. And my father came into the move because it spoke to him of an adventurous life in a way, but also he got a lot of um, personal validation from older men, like in father type roles for him. He found a lot of um, comfort in the duty that was put on him and his role as a spiritual leader. So they both were approaching me from these different places. You know, mom wanted me to follow the rules and my father was just thinking, what have you done to my reputation in this, on the farm, really? Okay. And, and there was a son who died. So we haven't talked about your family or siblings. Yeah. He was stillborn. He was the first baby my parents had. Um, I think I, I've never had a full conversation with my parents about this event. I found out about him. Uh, from one of my friends one day when we were standing around right before lunch, she looked at me just out of the blue and said, you had a brother that died. Wow. I had no idea. So this was all kind of just swept under the rug. Okay. He died just a few days before his due date. And my parents at the time, they lived, I think, two hours from the nearest town. Mm-hmm. And when mom knew something was wrong with the baby, they had to haul her on a wagon and tractor across the river bumping along as she was like pregnant and then drive her two hours into town half of that being on a horrible dirt road and by the time they got to the hospital it was over trauma for her I understand right but Jesus had a bigger plan for him so he was taken and then we all just moved on and it just wasn't discussed 
right? That's, that's how they would handle a tragedy. God has a bigger plan, so we don't need to dwell on it. We just need to move on. And if we wallow in our grief, we are not accepting God's plan fully. The appeal for a lot of people of these religious organizations or affiliations with movements where there is formula, where everything happens for a reason, you can then detach from very painful feelings. Yeah. Uh, and so for some people, that's quite a relief. And, and then there are others who still have their feelings, but they're not supposed to share them or they're not supposed to fully have them. And so they don't really fully heal because they haven't addressed it. It's still just under the surface. Yeah. And if there's, if there's any sort of sadness or grief, well, if you're not getting over it, you're clearly not praying hard enough. You know, like it's something, not only are you feeling sad, but you also aren't being holy enough or trying enough or getting close enough to God. So there's also another problem that you're having on top of the original sadness. I am very glad you got to hear the first part of my conversation with Hannah. I want to go back to something she was talking about. She said that at the time she left at about the age of 18, she did not have the language to verbalize her needs and to stand up for herself nor did she feel kind of entirely right in doing so or brave enough to try out this important skill. I know from a lot of people who are very uncomfortable with sharing their feelings, they are really hoping the other person who they're talking to or who is noticing how they are behaving is going to be psychic and is just going to pick up on what they need and what they meant and also sort of what they were thinking really loudly, but just couldn't verbalize. Sometimes also people become kind of passive aggressive in, I don't mean such a negatively diagnostic way, but just that people find a way to let people know they're upset and to let people know they're feeling jealous or to let people know they're feeling hurt, whatever the negative emotion is. But when they can't say it out loud, they have to find other ways to express it by letting people know just how disgruntled they are in their lives. But with Hannah, it was different. She wanted to be able to share her feelings. She wanted to be able to be upfront. She just wasn't sure how she wasn't raised with it. So I find that in order for people to move into a realm of being able to stand up for themselves, they need to do it in three steps. So first of all, you need to believe it is safe to do so. And that you have the right to do so, that it's not punishable. And especially as a woman, it's not something that is necessarily punishable. And when I say not punishable, I know that a lot of people have had their hands slapped in a lot of places and by a lot of people when they have actually verbalized their needs and stood up for themselves but I know it's something that women do deal a lot with. And there is so much punishment and ostracizing behavior and diagnoses of you being rude or having pride and not submissive enough or whatever the guidelines are within the group somehow that you have gone against or have fallen short. When you say that you're upset about something that you are justifiably upset about, 
and that you need something different or more, or you need some behavior towards you to stop, and that you have the right to say that, that's a foreign concept for many people raised in controlling situations. And it's a completely foreign concept for women raised in misogynistic environments, misogynistic countries even, which unfortunately many fundamentalist kinds of organizations that I deal with are misogynistic to a great degree. The second step is you need to be able to define what is problematic about your experience, what constitutes abuse, what constitutes neglect, what constitutes endangerment. When you don't know how to define it, you don't know that it's happening to you or that it's happening to someone you love or that actually the law will care about those kinds of behaviors and there are laws to protect you. And often mistreatment towards you in any of these groups, especially Bible-based groups, will be seen as God's will or a way for you to learn a lesson or something that you're deserving of because of your behavior. Just as Hannah said that, for example, if you're mistreated by a man, it's considered to be a criticism of you as a woman that you caused him to mistreat you. Can you imagine a world we lived in where the people who were victimized were the ones who had to take responsibility, like the people who were asked if they are assaulted, what were you wearing or why were you walking alone at night? You need to practice also. This is the third step. I can offer you a lot of ideas about what to say and what to try, but if you haven't had a chance to practice it, then it's very hard to do it on your own. There is a problem where a lot of people in positions of authority will tell people to stand up for themselves, but people don't know how. They haven't practiced it, and they are still trying to figure out the words and learn them and also get the nerve to say what they're really feeling to somebody else when they've been made to feel so fearful and undeserving of doing just that. While being a school counselor for a period of time, I heard many students going up to teachers' desks telling them that someone had been unfair to them or had cheated off their test or had stolen from them or had been excluding them from a friend group in a very painful way. And many teachers were unfortunately really guilty of turning towards those kids who were reporting this, who were trying to get some help. And they were told they were tattling. They were told that they needed to learn to take care of their issues on their own. And now go take care of that instead of running to adults to take care of your problems. And I could see those students turning away from the teacher's desk and stopping and looking overwhelmed because they didn't know what to do next. They did know they were not able to get support. And they didn't quite know what the next step should be because they didn't know what to say and they hadn't been given the words and the tools, and they hadn't really been given the confidence to be able to confront someone, they had no backup. And it would have been much better for a teacher to say, what have you tried so far? And if you don't know what to try, I can offer you some suggestions. And would you like me to be close by when you try this, just in case you're worried about feeling like you're doing this on your own? Or can you let me know how it goes? And if it didn't go well, I'll offer you some other suggestions. And if those don't work, let's put together opportunities for role play in the classroom so that you can all do conflict resolution and practice it together. I never heard that. I wish I had. And I had offered those ideas as suggestions over and over again within schools I worked in, but it was often met with resistance because, and I don't mean to sound 
too negative because teachers do wonderful work. But this whole thing requires work. And it required social awareness and an idea about conflict resolution on the part of the teachers, which not all teachers are interested in spending time on or are aware of or are schooled in. So they leave the students to resolve things on their own that they're not able to fully resolve. And the same thing happens when people leave controlling environments where they're on their own and they don't have the tools and they don't have the words and they haven't practiced. So one of the best things you can try as a friend, as a confidant, or a family member to someone who is afraid to speak up for themselves and have genuine conversations about their feelings with those who they feel have been insensitive to theirs or who have crossed boundaries with them, that you give them a chance to have some phrases they can come up with and that you help them develop and then give them an opportunity to practice them so that it becomes something they feel comfortable saying because they've done it over and over again in a safe environment. In a previous episode, I talked about when apologies are not really apologies. And here I want to finish up by talking about the fact that when people have been raised in environments where they have been told to be submissive and to ask for forgiveness and feel like they are a burden or a bother and that they need to apologize for everything when they don't actually need to apologize for most of it. Apologies can become a way for some people to make sure that the other person is just not upset with them, whether it was their fault or not, and also to show that they're deferential. And many people apologize when one isn't necessary. And going back to something that we talked about with Hannah, this is true, especially for some women. There was an important article by Fabio Moyoli, who offered alternatives to apologies. To be clear, this is not a contradiction of my previous one more thing before you go about the importance of genuine apologies. This is to offer alternatives to people who have learned to apologize for everything and for things that they haven't done wrong. He offers some suggestions in the place of apologies, and these are important to hear and for many of you listening to practice. For example, instead of saying, I'm sorry for being so late when there was nothing you could do to avoid it, you can try saying, thank you for waiting for me. Or instead of saying, I'm sorry for being so sensitive, you can try, thank you for being accepting of my feelings. Instead of, I'm sorry I always mess up, maybe say, thank you for understanding when I make a mistake, and that it's natural to make mistakes. And instead of saying, I'm sorry, you have to help me so much, maybe you can say, thank you for doing me a favor. And instead of, I'm sorry for talking so much, because many people who have been with people who have big personalities and big egos and need to be in charge, where also women need to be quiet, are often made to feel that they are talking too much. You can say to the person, instead of apologizing for how much you've talked, which is probably not at all too much, "Mm, thank you for listening. It changes the entire feeling of the interaction. You can stand up tall and acknowledge the other person without needing to berate yourself or to take full responsibility or to come across as though you're sure the other person is irritated with you 
And the only way to find out if the person you're talking to likes that you take responsibility for everything is that when you over-apologize, they accept your over-apology. And as opposed to clarifying that, no, 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 it's not your fault, and it's not an imposition, and you're not bothering me, and you're not doing anything wrong, they would probably say something like, that's fine, I've learned to expect that you'll make mistakes, or I have worked hard to be patient while you talk too much, or I'm glad you apologized. You should apologize for things that you do wrong. Or even, I wish you would change that about yourself so that you're not so bothersome. If you hear any of those things, then you know the person that you're dealing with is benefiting from you really prostrating yourself and taking the entire burden and putting it on your shoulders. And that is a weight that is going to crush you after a while. So, Lighten your load and stand up taller, and if that is a foreign concept to you, please know there are people who can help you master that, so that you can then meet people eye to eye, as opposed to staying emotionally connected to those who will always be more than happy to look down upon you. Talk to you next week. I'm excited to say that this podcast is now available on additional platforms. If you want to listen to Indoctrination, it's available for download on the NPR Radio Public app, YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and more. Please support Indoctrination at patreon.com indoctrination. We now have a big library of content that you can access with any donation. And subscribers receive bonus interviews and other cool goodies. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. Thank you for your support.